not been able to manage to do, and that's to get an applause for me. I'd like an applause every now and then. <laughs> that's good. Today we're going to be in Luke 16. Luke 16, and you can follow along with me on the back of the orange outline or up on the screen. <clears throat> Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, really stealing them. So he called him in and asked him, uh, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I'll know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. <clears throat> so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, <clears throat> you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, if your mailbox is similar to mine, about every week I get some kind of an advertisement for an investment. Now, I'm skeptical about anything that comes in the mail, but I know this. There are a whole lot more opportunities for investment than there is in my house money to invest. And today we are going to be taking a look at what the Bible says about God's financial strategy. And we're going to be looking at a parable, the one that we just read, that talks about the best use of our money. Now, over half of the parables of Jesus dealt with money and material possessions, and that comes out to approximately one out of every six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, Jesus had more to say about money than heaven or hell combined. Why? Because he knows the tremendous influence and power that money has over our lives. According to a George Gallup poll from 2002, 
56% of all divorces in America occur because of financial tensions. Many of you have learned from experience that if you don't manage your money, it's going to manage you. And the Bible tells us that our money is a spiritual test. So in verse 11, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? We're going to be looking at one of the most misunderstood parables in the Bible. Jesus uses a clever crook, a thief, to be an example to something completely unrelated to his crookedness. Now, to understand the parable fully, we have to know who he's talking to. In verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. I think Jesus loved to shock self-righteous people. I think he really enjoyed popping their balloons. He said to these Pharisees, hey, you guys who are so religious, I want to tell you a lesson. I want to give you a model to follow, and the model is a thief. Now the key to understanding the parable is verse 8, which just happens to be my favorite verse in the entire Bible, outside of the ones on salvation. This is my favorite passage from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The people of this world are more shrewd than the people of the light. Now what is Jesus saying? Many unbelievers are more wise in the way that they manage their money than believers but we can learn from them even though they have a different set of values. You can admire the qualities of a person without endorsing their total lifestyle. And so Jesus is is not commending this guy for being dishonest. He's saying simply that there are some things that we can learn from him. So in verses 1 and 2, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Circle manager. Circle that word. The Bible says that God put man and woman on the earth to manage it. And one day, just like this man had to give an account, we are going to stand before God and give an account to Him of what we did with the money that He entrusted into our care. And that's going to be the final test. Now, in this story, the manager is a crook. He has been stealing from his boss and he knows that he is about to lose his job because the boss has found out about him. And so he plans 
this clever scheme. He goes out and he finds some of the ma- his master's debtors. And he says to the first guy, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of oil. <laughs> Sit down quickly right now. Cut me a check for 400 and I'll write off the entire debt and we will call it even, Stephen. He finds another debtor. He says, how much do you owe my boss? Well, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. (laughs) Sit down right now and cut me a check for 800 bushels and I'll write off the entire debt and we'll be even Stephen. This guy is cheating his boss. So why did he do it? A couple of reasons. Number one, he has been stealing from his boss for some time and he knows that he's been caught. And so he goes out and he makes friends with these guys so that when he gets fired, He knows they will take him in because they will remember how he cut their bill. Second reason, if they don't take him in, he can blackmail them for being involved in his cheating scheme. So the master, the boss, finds out what the master or what the manager has been doing and his reaction is totally unexpected. The master commended the dishonest, dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. He doesn't commend him for being dishonest, but for being smart. He says, man, you were one smart guy in what you did. By the way, you're fired. But that was brilliant. That was brilliant what you did. What did the guy do? Three smart And this is what God wants us to do with our finances. Number one, He looked ahead. He looked ahead. In verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He said, I know I'm about to be fired and I'm 52 years old. I can't be out digging ditches with the 22-year-old guys. And I, some of y'all are visiting, I'm 52. And I, I can't go out and beg, so what am I going to do? Many Christians live only in the here and now and they're not looking ahead. They're not looking at the big picture. So he looked ahead. Second thing he did, he planned ahead. He planned ahead. In verse 4, he said, I know what I'll do when I lose my job here so people will welcome me into their house. Many Christians are doing absolutely no financial planning. They don't plan ahead. The question is this, are you making any plans at all for what might happen? 
And the third thing is he acted quickly. He acted quickly in verses 5 and 6. He called in each of his master's debtors and he cut one bill by 50%, the other bill by 20%, and he did it quickly. So circle the word quickly. He looked ahead, he planned ahead, and he did it quickly while he had time. So here is what Jesus is saying to us. You must do the same thing with your money. You ought to look ahead. You ought to plan ahead. And you need to do it quickly while you have the opportunity. That's God's financial strategy in a nutshell. Look ahead. Plan ahead. And do it right now while you have the opportunity. Now, Jesus interprets the parable for us and He gives us four lessons on the use of our money in verses 9 through 13. This is God's money management plan. Number one, there is the purpose of giving. Before we give, we need to know why we give. This is verse 9, the purpose of giving. <clears throat> I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, <clears throat> you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Does that sound like a strange statement to you? Isn't that just kind of an unusual statement? I want you to go out, use your money to make some friends so that when you get to heaven, they will welcome you in. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's not saying that you can buy yourself. He is not saying that you can earn your salvation or, or buy your way to heaven. The Bible is very clear in teaching that salvation is a free gift. Our salvation is based on the response that we choose to make to God's Word. What he's saying is, the greatest use of your money is to invest it in helping people get to heaven. Use your money to build relationships that are going to last forever. When you give to the Lord's work, two things happen. Number one, you help people come to know the Lord and you make friends with them now and in eternity. And number two, you get eternal rewards. We're going to spend a lot more time on the other side of death and so the best use of our money is to invest it in things that are going to outlast this life. So here's the key point. Use your temporary resources for permanent good. It says, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Heaven is going to be full of people who cheer when you get there. I mean, can you imagine? You, you arrive in heaven the first day. And somebody runs up to you and grabs your neck and, and hugs you and says, thank you. Thank you so much. And you're, you know, you know how you are when someone says hey to you and you haven't seen them in like 20 years and you've forgotten who they are. But you have to pretend like you know them. You know, no. Well, now in heaven, we're going to be honest. So you're going to say, well, listen, man, I appreciate the hugs and everything, but I, I, I don't know who you are. We have never talked. I have never, I have never met you. And the person said, oh, oh, well, let me tell you the story. Because you willingly contributed to the work at Port City, they had a program that reached me with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am in heaven today because of your contribution. Now that's what I call an eternal IRA. You see, you have benefits now, but you also have benefits later. Now here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6.20. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy. Excuse me. How many of you suffer from allergies like I do? Okay. I'm waiting for a cure for allergies. And uh, maybe more than Claritin. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you buy on earth is eventually going to rot, rust, fall apart, wear out, or be stolen. And that's because things don't last. Cars don't last. Clothes don't last. But people do last. And the Bible says that every human being is going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And the way I spend my time and my money may determine where they spend eternity. Do you know what the difference is between a burial suit at a funeral and a regular suit? The burial suit has no pockets. You know why? Can't take it with it. Can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. So the Bible says, lay up or store up treasures in heaven. How do you do that? By investing in helping people to get there. And the point is this, you don't give it after you get there. You give it before you get there. So the lesson is very simple. Don't spend all of your money on yourself. Spend some of it on yourself. We're going to talk about that next week. First Timothy 6.16, it says God has allowed you some things for personal enjoyment. If you don't get anything else out of today's message, get this, use your affluence for good influence. That's what this parable is teaching. That's the purpose of giving. And then there is the pattern for living. The pattern for living. 
God expects us to be responsible in the way we manage our money, save our money, spend our money, and give our money. It says in verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If I am faithful with what I have now, then God can trust me with more of it. And that applies to every area of your life. If you are faithful with the little bit of money that you have, it can grow. Now, I am not a believer in the health and wealth gospel. I do not believe that God intends for everybody to be a millionaire. That's not the point. The point is, when you faithfully manage little things, you get big results. God is saying, if you take care of the dimes, I'll take care of the dollars. Have you ever heard somebody say, when I make it big, then I'll really be faithful in my giving. God says, who are you kidding? If you are not faithful in what you have now, who says you're going to be faithful when you have more? It's kind of like the guy who got up at the, you know, these weekend motivation seminars. And this guy gets up and he's telling this story. He say, Oh, when I was 15 years old, my family was so, so poor. We had nothing. And my mother took me to church one Sunday and, and, and the offering plate came by and all I had was, was five dollars to my name. And I put all of that five dollars in the plate and, Today, I'm a multi-millionaire. And one guy who's standing a few uh, rows over stands up and says, yeah, I dare you to do it again. <clears throat> if I'm faithful in little things, the principle is I, God can trust me in the big things. And then the third thing is there is the principle of blessing. It says this, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Do you see the connection between physical money and spiritual health? The Bible teaches very clearly that what I do with my money determines how much God can bless my life. Now, I am not saying that you give to God and He promises that you'll be a millionaire. This passage is not teaching that. The key phrase is true riches. It says true riches, and there are many, many ways other than money that God can bless us. God is not some jackpot at the casino in Biloxi where you put in a dollar and you try to get a thousand dollars back. He's not a jackpot. But there is a direct relationship between what I do with my money and the spiritual depth of my life. And many 
Christians are unaware of that principle. So here's the key point. Inconsistent giving produces inconsistent living. It says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? That's the principle of blessing. You show me somebody who is having victory in the area of money management, learning to save and giving giving faithfully and spending wisely, wisely, and I'll show you somebody who is excited about what God is doing in their life. And so God is testing us with our physical resources. So that's the principle of blessing. And then, number four, there is the priority of loving. The priority of loving. And Jesus summarizes it in verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Have you ever tried to work for two bosses? Trying to please two people at the same time is guaranteed to give you a headache. So Jesus lays it out in black and white. He says when it comes to money management, the heart of the problem is really a problem of the heart. It's on the inside. And so from this verse 13, we get two lessons. Number one, I must choose what I will love most in life. I must choose what I will love most in life, God or money. The Constitution of the United States does not say life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. I must choose what I'm going to love most in life. Money is a great servant. It's a lousy God. And two, money is to be used, not loved. To be used, not loved. Absolutely nothing wrong with money. It's completely neutral. The difference is in how you make it and how you spend it. The truth is, many of the greatest believers in the Bible were wealthy. And I don't mean low-level wealthy. I mean wealthy, wealthy. Abraham was so wealthy. He was the first Arab sheik. I mean, this guy was out there in the desert traveling around with several thousand people and he had all kinds of workers and servants. Job, in the book of Job, by God's own admission, the guy was not only the wealthiest person in the world, he was also the most spiritual. King David was wealthy. Solomon's wealth was legendary. Joseph of Amrathia was wealthy. He's the guy who gave up his tomb so they'd have a a place to put the body of Jesus. Well, I guess he got it back after a few days. Kind of a temporary donation. And then there's my favorite woman in the Bible, in the New Testament. Oh, you'll have to read about her in Luke 8.3. Luke 8.3. She was a multi-millionaire. 
by the name of Joanna. You know how I know she was rich? Because she, she was the wife of the guy who managed all of King Herod's physical possessions. And you know what she did with her money? You ready for this? She supported Jesus' ministry. Because <laughs> that goes a long way in helping me understand something. I had always wondered how Jesus and 12 growing men could wander around the country of Palestine for three years with no apparent means of income. You know how they did it? They had a very rich woman who was serving as their benefactor. You read Luke 8.3 and tell me if I'm not telling you the truth. And so, the next time somebody says, well, I don't think women had a very dominant role in the New Testament. It seems like they were kind of pushed down. Send them to Luke 8.3. There would have been no ministry of the twelve had there not been the ministry of the one, Joanna and Susanna, who are mentioned in that text. So, you can be wealthy and be very spiritual at the same time. So it's not about the amount of money. It's about how you make it and what you do with it. The problem is when we start to love money. The Bible says, doesn't say money is evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. So here's the key point. Love people and use money. Now what happens is we get it reversed. And we start to love money and use people. If I live for money, money becomes my master. If I give my money, it becomes my servant. Remember, you don't get joy from what you keep, but from what you give away. Acts 20.35, more blessed to give than to receive. So here's a question. Are you really putting God first in your life? Do your finances prove it? Does the way that you give demonstrate that God can trust you with more? How much are you investing in eternity? Now I realize that some of you are visiting with us. Maybe even for the first time. And you may be thinking right now, Oh no, Mabel! Another church that wants our money. That's not what this text is about. This has not been a fundraising sermon. A fundraising sermon is when the minister looks at you real mean. And he says, nobody's leaving the building. No one's going to Golden Corral. Wendy's. Captain D's or Subway until we get $5,000. Bob, lock the doors. That's a fundraising sermon. We don't do those. You know why? Because if we have to force you to give, you don't get credit for it anyway because the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. So if we have to get everybody down on the floor and twist their arm and get them in a half Nelson to give, it doesn't count. 
God wants it to be willingly and from the heart. Now, here's the point. God doesn't need your money. doesn't need your money, my money, anybody's money. What he really wants is what our money represents, and that's us. I want to end with this. God has a plan for your life. The Bible says that Jesus came down from heaven to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross so your sins and my sins can be forgiven. He says through baptism, He wants to give each one of us a brand new But, here's the condition. You have to first give your life to Him. And you can't do that until you give Him your time and your money. So let's remember this. Use your affluence for good influence. That's God's purpose in giving and in allowing us to have our material possessions. We're going to be led in an, an invitation hymn and David is going to be coming up here in just a couple of seconds. If you have a particular need, if we can pray for you, if we can assist you in some way, please let us know what that need is while we stand and sing.